Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the reasons not to dodge taxes include your screwing up our inequality metrics and also it's just not cool edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, my colleague on Alphaville, Matt Klein, talks to Gabriel Zuckman, an economist at UC Berkeley who specializes in inequality and the use of tax havens. His book is called The Hidden Wealth of Nations. Matt, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, real quick, uh, before we play the conversation, uh, who is Gabriel Zuckman? Gabriel Zuckman is a young uh, French economist who made his name looking into something that really had not been studied at all by academic economists until now, which is tax evasion and the impact that tax evasion can play on macroeconomic data. And, you know, we'll talk about this more in the show, but basically found that it actually is quite significant. It can be measured in a pretty straightforward way using publicly available data from places like the IMF, uh, national central banks, but no one had really looked into it before. And that's really how he's made his name. And he's expanded this research into linking what we know uh, from macro data with, you know, occasional new releases of, of data from, you know, leaks from banks that have been busted for tax evasion, things like that. Yeah, what I also liked about this conversation is that you get into the mechanics of how tax havens actually work, which I think there's a lot of confusion about, or also just a lot of general ignorance about, at least in my case, before I listened to it. Don't try that at home. No, indeed. But also, we start finding out who the bad cats are, who the, you know, who's really the offensive player in the tax dodging game. That's right. Even places that are known for their probity and, and general niceness, like Scandinavia, they have extremely high rates of tax evasion when you look at the data, which is a fascinating discovery. Yeah, lots of surprising stuff in this conversation. And then towards the end, you do also talk about how tax dodging messes with the inequality statistics, and you talk about inequality more generally. It's a really fascinating chat. Everybody should listen. Be excited. Here it is. Gabe Zuckman, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So I just want to get started by asking how you ended up developing your research interests. The field that you focus on, namely taxation, tax evasion, and the relationship between that and inequality, is something that now is very much in the headlines. It's gotten a lot of political salience. But at the time that you were starting your studies of economics and your PhD, it was not really on anybody's radar. In fact, if we think about the economists who made their name in this field, it's a very, very short list, and you're on it. So what drove that interest? I guess there are a couple of reasons. So one is that I, I started my PhD right after the financial crisis, or during the financial crisis, actually, in 2009. And, and before that, I worked for a short period of time in, in a bank, you know, in Paris, doing macroeconomic research. And then while working there, I, I used macro statistics, trying to understand a little bit what was going on. And, and then uh, when you look at these macro data, then you see hundreds of thousands of dollars that flow in and out of places like the Cayman Islands, or billions, you know, in Switzerland and so on. And it was just very striking. It is something that you could read in the newspapers, you know, scandals and tax evasion. But when you see it, you know, in, in, in data like that, you know, in, you know for in the Bank for International Settlement Statistics or IMF and so on, that's, that's another thing. So I wanted to understand what was going on. I wanted to understand what these flows meant. Was it tax evasion? Was it tax avoidance? Was it some kind of regulatory arbitrage, you know, what were the implications for financial stability, it struck me at the time that economists, academics were not talking about that a lot, very little. I mean, people in academia have been studying tax havens, but, but not really economists, you know, sociologists, people in political science, there's been great work by journalists, NGOs, but not economists. So that was one thing. The second I guess motivation was I was interested in inequality and I started working you know, with, with Thomas Piketty in Paris 
when I was a student. And so he encouraged me to work on inequality. And one feeling I had was, well, you know, it's great all those studies that, that use tax data to study top income shares and you know, like he did before, you know, with Emmanuel Says, with Tony Atkinson, with many others. But there's an obvious problem, which is that, of course, you know, rich people, they have incentives to, you know, underreport their income, in, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally. And, you know, the, the incentives to underreport income have changed so much over time. Before 1913, you didn't have an income tax in the U.S., then in the post-World War II decades, you had 90% marginal tax rates. So these incentives has, have changed enormously. They vary a lot across countries. So it's a bit you know, unclear at some level what you can learn about the long-run trends and the cross-country differences in inequality just by looking at tax data. So I wanted to understand, okay, what do we miss when we just take tax data, you know, as, as gospel or, you know, as, as granted. Do we underestimate income inequality, wealth inequality a lot? How big, you know, a difference does that make? So that, you know, these were, I guess, the two main reasons. Excellent. Well, this is all a wonderful segue into the topic of your book, which is also, I think, one of the first papers of yours that I encountered, which is based very much on this, these macro data you were talking about uh, that you discovered at your bank, which is this notion that using very straightforward publicly available data, you can find unusual inconsistencies or what one might call systematic errors that point in certain directions. So why don't you talk to us a bit about the hidden wealth of nations and you know what exactly it was that you found? Yeah, so what I wanted to do is, okay, can we have a sense of how big the, the amount of wealth in tax havens is? So... First of all, I started looking a bit naively on the websites of the central banks, you know, in Switzerland, in Hong Kong, in the Cayman Islands. And unfortunately, most of these tax havens, they don't publish any useful statistics. They do publish some statistics, most of which are totally useless. And, and they don't tell you this basic information, which is how much wealth do we manage on behalf of foreign uh, residents? With one exception, which is Switzerland. So that was kind of an incredible discovery. It turned out that the, the Swiss Central Bank publishes on a monthly basis exactly that piece of information. So here is the total amount of wealth that, that is managed by Swiss banks on behalf of Swiss residents and then on behalf of foreign residents. And here's the types of investments that they make. Where do they invest? Do they uh, mostly purchase equities or bonds or mutual fund shares? And who are the owners of those fortunes? And so that was a revelation because what, I, wh what you see when you look at those data, and strangely enough, no, nobody or you know, very few individuals be before that had been looking at those statistics. You know, they had been published for the first time in the late 1990s, so they were there, you know, for, for 10 years when I started looking at them. In any case, when you look at those data, what do you see? Well, you see, you see something, you know, very clear, which is, first of all, there's a ton of wealth, of foreign wealth in Swiss banks, about $2.3 trillion today. And second, what people do through their Swiss bank accounts is, of course, they don't leave the money idle. They make financial investments. So they buy equities, they buy bonds, and most importantly, uh, mutual fund shares. And among those, they especially buy shares of mutual funds that are incorporated in Luxembourg. And the reason for that is actually many Swiss banks, you know, they, in th there's this big mutual fund industry in Luxembourg, and, and many of those are actually subsidiaries of Swiss banks. You don't have so many mutual funds in, in Switzerland, in, in for tax reasons in particular, but in, in, in Luxembourg, you have lots of them. And so what the Swiss bankers do is they tell their clients, okay, you have all this wealth, now what we advise you to do is to invest, you know, to, to invest in that mutual fund. So I see that in the data, and then I try to think about, okay, how can we have a sense of what's the amount of wealth that's in, in the tax havens other than Switzerland? And so here you don't have direct data. So you need to be, you know, you, you need to use indirect methods. 
To be clear, also, not necessarily all of the foreign money in Switzerland is tax evasion wealth, too. I mean, the part of what you did was you were able to distinguish between the stuff that was actually being hidden from the authorities versus more legitimate offshore yeah. funds. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's totally, that's, that's extremely important. So at, at that stage, I'm, I'm just trying to see about how much wealth there is in there and whether it's legal, legally declared, whether it evades taxes or not, that's, that raises other issues and, 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 and we can talk about that. But at this stage, it was more like, okay, how much wealth do we, do we see in all, those, uh, in all those tax havens? In the case of Switzerland, before the financial crisis, about 90, maybe 95% of all the wealth uh, that belonged to Europeans was undeclared, so was, was, you know, evading taxes. And the reason we know this is because there is actually uh, pretty good data of that, again, published by the Swiss Tax Authority, that works as follows. You know, si- since 2005, the European owners of, of Swiss accounts, they, they have the choice. They can either declare their account to their home country tax authority in Germany, in France, or they can choose to remain anonymous. But in that case, the Swiss bank is supposed to withhold a tax of 35% on the interest that's generated by the account. And it turns out that the Swiss tax authority since 2005 has been publishing statistics on, okay, here is the fraction of you know, customers who choose to remain anonymous, and uh, here's the fraction of customers who choose to self-report their account to their home country tax authority. And 90, 95% choose to remain anonymous. And so you're going to tell me, yeah, well, but then that's not a problem. They pay the tax, so there's no tax evasion. Well, except that they don't. Because the tax only applies to those accounts that are held by households in their own name, directly. But it doesn't apply to accounts that belong on paper to shell corporations. And what Swiss banks have done is that, of course, when, when this became law in 2005, they, they just shifted all the accounts to, to shell companies. And that's something you see very clearly. So that's something I saw, again, at the time in the data very clearly, because then you see that all this money that was recorded as belonging to Europeans, all of a sudden now it's assigned in the statistics to Panama, British Virgin Islands. It's, uh, it's, that's incredible. And then that was confirmed, you know, years later uh, during the Panama Papers, this big leak from Mossack Fonseca, a firm in Panama that creates shell companies. Well, you see that <laughs> in 2005, it created tons of shell corporations on behalf of you know, UBS, Credit Suisse, and so on. So just to clarify, because this is a remarkable finding, what you're saying is 90 to 95% of European wealth held in Switzerland is held by people who are evading taxes or at least using shell corporations and the benefits of anonymity to avoid paying taxes at the relatively high rate. Yeah, so that that is absolutely the case and the, that was absolutely the case in 2008-2009 before and at the beginning of the financial crisis. And before G20 countries started to crack down on tax evasion because you know some progress has been made uh, over the last decade. So what about the fraction today? So the fraction today is and, and there's some margin of, of uncertainty, but the latest data suggests that it's about 75% of the wealth held by Europeans that's still undeclared. So we've moved from 5-10% that was declared to 25% that's, that's declared over the course of seven, eight years, which is some progress, but which also shows very clearly that there's still quite a lot of tax evasion going on. That's for Switzerland, and the, the truth is we, we know a lot about Switzerland because Swiss banks, they do a lot of bad things, but at least the Swiss Central Bank, the Swiss Tax Authority, they do publish some statistics. In the other tax havens, they also do all sorts of bad things, but they say nothing about that. So, so that's an even bigger problem. So here you need to find, you know indirect ways to, 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 to measure what's happening in there. And so the way that, that I proceeded is 
I looked at anomalies and inconsistencies in the international financial statistics. And, you know, when you take a global perspective on uh, wealth, so you ask yourself, okay, what's the total amount of financial assets on the planet and the total amount of liabilities? In principle, financial assets should match liabilities unless we have debts vis-a-vis -vis foreign planets, which is not really the case. And unfortunately, what happens is exactly this. It looks like we have debts vis-a-vis -vis Mars or you know some, some other planet. Financial assets always fall short of total liabilities. So what's the reason for this? So there are a number of reasons. One reason is these statistics, like all economic financial statistics, they are not, they are not perfect, they are, there is measurement error. The second and most important reason is that the wealth that households own in offshore bank accounts, by which I mean in bank accounts outside of their country of residency, this wealth is well recorded on the liabilities side of countries' balance sheets but it's not recorded on their assets side. So take a very simple example. So you take, for instance, a French resident, you know, someone who lives in Paris, and that person, she has a Swiss bank account, and she makes investments. Let's say she, she owns Google equities, so American securities. So what's recorded is that American statisticians, they see that there is a Swiss bank that owns U.S. securities, so that's a liability for the U.S. So they, they record this as a liability vis-a-vis -vis Switzerland. They have no way to know that behind the Swiss bank there's a French person, but they are correct in saying, okay, so rest of the world invests in the U.S. In France, the statisticians there, they should record an asset in the U.S., but they can't because they don't know that this French person has this Swiss bank account. They just don't know. And in Switzerland, so people there observe all of that business they they record it, but they don't record it n neither as an asset nor as a liability for Switzerland because it's not. They're totally correct. It's a business between a French investor and some U.S. corporation. And so you see that offshore wealth creates inconsistencies like that where you have more liabilities that will tend to be recorded than assets. And it turns out that when you decompose the global assets liabilities mismatch. And you ask, okay, where is it coming from? Is it all random? No, it's not at all random. Most of it comes from the fact that a lot of the mutual funds in Luxembourg and also in Ireland and in the Cayman Islands have no recorded owners. That is, the liabilities of a country like Luxembourg are much higher than the sum of all the assets on Luxembourg that all countries report. So l statisticians in Luxembourg tell us at the end of last year, to the end of 2016, and still more or less the same today, the mutual funds in Luxembourg managed a bit more than 3.5 trillion euros of wealth. And so the liabilities of these funds is, is exactly this, more than 3.5 trillion. Now, if you take the sum of all the assets that all countries record on Luxembourg, you get at most 2 trillion. So you have 1.5 trillion euros of Luxembourg mutual fund shares. Nobody says it owns this wealth. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. And you know, that's a big fraction of the Luxembourg mutual fund industry that is just untraceable. Some people own these Luxembourg mutual fund shares, but they're just nowhere recorded. And, and the reason for that is because they're all, you know, in Switzerland, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in the Cayman Islands. These are the places where these unrecorded mutual fund shares are owned, and they are nowhere recorded as assets. Okay, so that's just Luxembourg. Now, if you look at all tax havens combined, my estimate is that all included, there's 8% of the world's household financial wealth, which is held in tax havens globally. Uh, that's about $8.6 trillion today. So that's the latest data point now for the end of 2016. $8.6 trillion, of which in between a quarter and 30% is in Switzerland, that we know for sure, 
and the rest then is in these other wealth management centers. Okay, so these are the big orders of magnitude. Then, as you mentioned, absolutely not all of this is illegal money, is evading taxes. Latest estimate is about 75% of this corresponds to tax evasion. And you see that's, you know, that's a pretty uh, big amount uh, of wealth. And this 8% figure, that's a number for the world as a, as a whole, you know, total wealth in tax havens divided by total world financial wealth. But there is a lot of heterogeneity across countries. So, so for some countries, it's much more than 8% than they hide. Think about Greece or Portugal or Italy, you know, Latin American countries, African countries, Russia. So the estimate we have for Russia is more than 50% of uh, Russian financial wealth is actually outside of the countries in offshore tax havens. For other countries, it's, it's a bit less than 8%. Japan, apparently. Maybe the United States is a bit below 8%. But in any case, these are uh, very substantial amounts of money. Yeah, one thing from the book that was interesting is, is you had a table that was comparing your estimates of, of the amount of wealth that was hidden offshore by country, by region. And intriguingly, uh, the U.S. was at the bottom in terms of your estimate, where Europe was a little more than twice that, and Canada was a similar level. Do you have a sense of you know why that might be? Is it is it just because you know wealth taxes are higher in, in these countries? That there's more of an incentive to move that, or what's your sense there? It's probably partly for historical reasons, in the sense that you know the the tax haven that has historically speaking played an outsized role. It's Switzerland. Switzerland and the Swiss financial industry invented this business of you know, cross-border wealth management in the 1920s. And for a long time, they mostly had clients from the neighboring countries, from France, from Germany, from Italy. And that, I, I think, explains why Europe is still overrepresented in offshore wealth compared to the U.S. The other, you know, big offshore wealth management centers, many of them also in, in, in Europe, you know, Luxembourg, we've talked about it. Uh, Monaco, you know, uh, the Channel Islands, Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Ireland to some extent. So, so, so that also explains why Europe is so, is so overrepresented. The U.S., I mean, it's, it's also possible that in the data we underestimate the importance of offshore wealth in the U.S. You know, I, must, I want to stress that we're talking about tax evasion, we, we're talking about hidden money, offshore wealth. It's not an exact science. Th there are uncertainties. The estimate I have, 8% of household financial wealth in tax havens is likely to be, if anything, an understatement, you know, a lower bound. It only includes financial assets to start with because the method I have is only adapted to that form of wealth. So no real estate, for No example. real estate, no works of art, no valuables, no gold or diamond, no, no, no th nothing like that. Um, and so it's, you know, people have other, there are other estimates out there that uh, all of them actually are, are, are higher than what I have. And that includes, you know, estimates by, by NGOs, but also estimates by you know, the Boston Consulting Group, for instance, have, has an annual global wealth report where they say there's $10 trillion in offshore wealth, you know, more than what I find. So it's possible there is much more offshore wealth, or significantly more, much significantly more offshore wealth than I estimate, and maybe, you know, that that is also true for the U.S. Let's go through the mechanics a little bit for how someone actually is able to get money into these kinds of tax havens and then have it disappear from their local authorities. You describe this very well in your book, so I'd like to get kind yeah. of a brief version well, of how, how people do this. The way this works is that, so people have in mind sometimes, oh, you know, that it's suitcases you know full of cash and 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 there's a bit of that you know there's, there's there's this this case you know involving swiss bankers in the u.s where they were smuggling diamonds into toothpaste tubes so that that happens <laughs> but it's not the way that most of the wealth arrives in tax havens the the way this works is through the financial and the banking system and so people make wire transfers uh, to their offshore accounts. So very concretely, so if you want to do it, but, you know, please don't, don't do it. So this is not <laughs> financial advice. Yes, uh, don't, don't do it, but this is how, how, how you can do it. Let's imagine, you, you know, that you, you, 
you, you are a small business owner, let's say, or even you own a big business, you know, in, in, in the US, and uh, you want to send money to Switzerland. So what you're going to do is that, uh, first of all, you're going to create a shell corporation, a shell company, let's say, I don't know, in the Cayman Islands. And then you're going to purchase some fake uh, services, let's say management advice, from that shell company that you actually control. And in payments for those services, you're going to wire money to, to that shell company's bank account. And, and the shell corporation, you know, in the meantime, has opened a bank account in Switzerland, where more than 60% of all the wealth uh, is owned on paper by shell corporations. And so that's the way it works. And it's very hard for tax authorities or, or banking regulators to identify in real time whether there's tax evasion involved because uh, there are hundreds of thousands of payments uh, made to places like Switzerland or even the Cayman Islands uh, you know, every day and uh, a lot of these payments are, are, are totally legal and, and reflect legitimate business operations but among those you're going to have payments that correspond to what I described which is just pure outright fraud it's, it's, it's uh, first of all tax fraud because by, by buying these fake services you artificially reduce your taxable income in the US by you know inflating your costs and second once the money has arrived in Switzerland then it can be invested in global markets typically in Luxembourg mutual funds and any interest or dividends or capital gains that you earn is not going to be taxed unless you self-report your account to the IRS which you should absolutely do which is the law or if the Swiss banker reports the account on uh, your behalf, which is what they are now supposed to do, which is the, the, you know, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, FATCA, that was enacted in 2010, that entered into force in 2015, says offshore financial institutions have to report to the IRS about the accounts and the income that their U.S. customers Earn. And the same is, is being implemented in, in all other OECD countries with what is known as the common uh, reporting standard. So there is now an automatic exchange of bank information. That's what the law says. Now, of course, the truthful communication of information is, is not what Swiss bankers or bankers in the Cayman Islands do extremely well. It's, it's not really what they've done you know, over the last decades. And so uh, that's you know, the fundamental, if you want, problem that the, the current approach to these issues faces is that we are asking, and it's a good idea, but it's not enough. We are asking bankers in tax havens to, to, to provide information to foreign countries' tax authorities. It's better than not asking them anything, but it's not enough because they don't have any incentives to provide the correct information. And it's a bit naive to believe that the very same people who were smuggling diamonds into toothpaste tubes now are going to just tell the truth about the wealth of their, of their clients. They will if they have the incentives to do it. That is, if they face very stiff penalties in case of non-compliance. But if they, they don't, if they can earn a lot of money by facilitating tax evasion, which is what some of them have been doing over the last decades, then there will, there will always be uh, you know, some, some supply of that type of uh, services. And, 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 and to me, it is probably the, the number one problem in this area is that we, we are not doing enough, I feel, to change the incentives of tax havens, the countries themselves, the financial institutions that operate in tax havens, and the, the people who work in those financial institutions. That's why I think that, I, I really think that considerable progress can be made in terms of reducing tax evasion, and some progress has already been made, if you have clearly defined proportional sanctions for tax havens, for financial institutions, for, for bankers. And that's, that's basically what's missing. For instance, there's 45% of the wealth in Swiss banks that, that still belongs nowadays to Europeans. And 
there have been numerous cases where Swiss banks have been found helping their Euro European customers evade taxes, and yet the EU has been unable to articulate clear you know, sanctions against neither Switzerland or Swiss banks. It's just like the thing that through diplomacy and, and through international agreements, they can solve all the problems, which, again, I don't want to say is useless, but it's very useful, but it's just not enough. You have to approach these problems from a somewhat also economic perspective where, where incentives matter a great deal. Right, because as as you said a lot of, there's been a lot of changes in terms of what people are supposed to report and when I you know I've written about Luxembourg based on some things you said and, and one of the things that that people in Luxembourg have have said back to me as well you know the beneficial owners the people who really are actually investing in Luxembourg mutual funds are all known to the Luxembourg authorities and that information is transmitted to other authorities part of all the OECD agreements and yet I guess you're you're just saying that's not it's not really working fully the way it should be. Well, if it was transmitted, then we should not observe this enormous mismatch between Luxembourg liabilities and assets. Because if it was indeed transmitted, then countries like France, like Germany, would see uh, well, you know, the, the true value of Luxembourg mutual fund shares that their residents own. They would record that as an asset on their balance sheet, and this mismatch would disappear. And so people in the Luxembourg financial industry, I mean, n none of them has, you know, ever been able to, to give me a good answer uh, to that question. Why is there such a considerable mismatch about the value of your mutual funds, more than 3.5 trillion euros, and what's recorded all over the world? Can you tell us? Who owns the missing 1.5 trillion? That seems like a relatively important problem, uh, even if you forget about tax evasion or anything, about just the monitoring of financial stability. I mean, if, you, if we have such gaping holes in basic financial statistics in the EU, how do we do a good job at, at monitoring you know, uh, financial stability? So can you please... Let us know, and, and can we fix that statistical problem? And the, the first time I pointed this problem, it was in 2011, so it was six years ago, and there's, you know, it keeps growing. It keeps growing pretty fast. So that's a real issue. So very much related to this, you and a colleague recently came out with a paper that was taking advantage of some data that came from the, the Panama Papers and Mossack Fonseca, those, those folks, and, and matching it with data from HSBC's Switzerland branch and essentially putting these together to estimate tax evasion among countries that we normally think of as very upright uh, Sweden I think and, and Denmark and you know these you know these the supposedly the the uncorrupt northern Europeans that should be example of everyone else and you found that among the very rich there something like as a the median estimate was about 30 percent taxes not being paid so can you talk more about how how you made that work and what you found yes that was that was a pretty big surprise, I, I must say, because exactly as you mentioned, we don't think as Scandinavian countries as the poster children for tax evasion, and hiding money and everything. And indeed, it's true that when you try to estimate the average rate of tax evasion in those countries, it's very small. That is, the estimate we have is that on average for the population as a whole, 3% of, of personal taxes are evaded. So evasion is only 3% on average. How does that compare to like other advanced countries? So it's, it's much less in countries like Greece or Italy or countries generally where you have a big self-employment sector. So when you have lots of self-employed in the economy, it's where you tend to have you know, quite a lot of tax evasion just because self-employment makes tax evasion possible. When self-employment is limited, then what happens is that most people only earn wages or, or pension income or interest and dividends through domestic banks. In that case, tax evasion is just impossible. And so in many countries, including Scandinavian countries, but countries like Japan, like Germany, like France, to, to some extent also the U.S., the vast, vast majority of the population just can't evade taxes even if it wanted to. It's just impossible. And so... Average tax evasion is small, 3% in Scandinavia. Maybe it's 6%, you know, in reality in the U.S., but, you know, these are just relatively small 
orders of magnitude. Now, what we found is when you go to the very, very top of the wealth distribution and you have to zoom into the very top bins, uh, then you start finding pretty high rates of evasion. So for the top 0.01% richest Scandinavians, so the 1,000 richest households in, 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 in these three Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, we found that they evade 30% of, on average, of their, of their true tax liability. So 10 times the, the, the macro average. So how did we find that? So the starting point is the macro estimates of the, of the amount of wealth in tax havens that, that we discussed, based, based on the Swiss data, based on the anomalies in the financial statistics. And, and for a very long time, there was no information about who owns this wealth. It was just all relatively abstract, you know, trillions of dollars, 8%, but no information about who owns it. That changed recently thanks to leaks. And there's been a number of leaks from financial institutions in tax havens. And the two most important leaks are, first, the leak from HSBC Switzerland uh, that occurred in 2007 and that was used by journalists in, in, in 2015 you know, under the name of Swiss Leaks. And the second big leak is the Panama Papers, of course, in 2016. So what we did with my, my colleagues, Annette Altazater and Nils Johansen, is that we, in, in cooperation with Scandinavian administrations, tax authorities, and, and journalists in, in Sweden, we were able to analyze data, we were able to match the names on, on these leaks to background socioeconomic characteristics, in particular to tax return data and wealth data, because Scandinavian countries, they keep very good records of individual wealth for the entire population. Except for the part that's hidden, I guess. Except for the part that's hidden. And so... Once we did that, we were able to, to ask a very simple question, which is, okay, this wealth at HSBC Switzerland, let's say, who owns it? How concentrated is it? So you had one view, which was pretty popular, was that that form of tax evasion uh, through offshore bank accounts has become a bit more, has become somewhat democratic, it, like everybody does it. So that, that was one view, and it's true that you have just at HSBC Switzerland, more than 30,000 bank accounts in all Swiss banks at the time of the leak in 2007, hundreds of thousands of undeclared bank accounts. And the other view is, oh no, this is something that is really only done by, by the ultra-wealthy. And so what we found is actually much closer to the second view, in the sense that 80% of the, of the undeclared wealth held by Scandinavians at HSBC Switzerland belong to the top 0.1% richest Scandinavians. 50% belong to the top 0.01% wealthiest Scandinavians. So households with more than $50 million in, in net wealth own half of all the wealth at HSBC Switzerland. How did that compare to the overall wealth distribution in Sweden? Yeah, uh, great question. So the overall wealth distribution is that the top 0.01% owns 5% of total wealth. Okay, so they own 5% of all, you know, of, of real estate and, and Scandinavian businesses and pension funds and 50%, so 10 times more, of uh, the wealth at HSBC Switzerland. And so... Okay, so this offshore wealth turns out, it's true that you have lots of relatively small, you know, bank accounts, you know, thousands of them, but quantitatively speaking, what matters is, you know, the, the, the accounts where you see dozens of millions, hundreds of millions, that's, that's what matters. So by combining the macro estimates of the wealth in tax havens with the leaks, we can estimate the amount of tax evasion through offshore bank accounts for each bin of the wealth distribution. And then what we do, the last step is, of course, there are other forms of tax evasion than just hiding your money all over the world. What do we know about that? Well, 
the best way to quantify this is to look at random, randomized audits that the tax authorities conduct very regularly. And these random audits, they are great at detecting you know, standard, relatively unsophisticated forms of tax evasion, like unreported labor market activity, fraud to tax credits, and so on. So they are very good for the, these widespread forms of tax evasion, but they just don't capture sophisticated forms of tax evasion, like offshore, just because they can't ask banks all over the world, you know, whether a particular person under audit owns anything in there. So by combining these, these several sources of data, that's how we got this result. That on average, 3% of taxes are evaded, but for the ultra-wealthy, people with more than $50 million in net wealth, it's 30% of taxes owed that are evaded. That's a remarkable number. In the case of Sweden, the difference between the rate of tax that people in that bracket are supposed to be paying and the rate that they're actually paying is what? I mean, is it like, so there's what, a 50% tax rate or so they're supposed to pay and then they end up paying about 30% less than that? Is that is that, that a fair way of characterizing it? That, that's roughly the, 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 the order of magnitude. No, they're supposed to pay something like 50% and, and they end up paying 35%. And one thing that's important to, to, to realize is I, I don't want to claim that these results reflect, you know, some universal law and that it's it's the same in all other countries, including in the US. Maybe things are different and future research we, we hope to be able to study other countries wi- where the same information is available, you know, the HSBC list in particular. But a reaction I have sometimes is, well, you know, Scandinavian countries is very different because rich people there, they really face super high tax rates. It's really unlike the United States. But it's not, it's not true, actually. So the marginal tax rates that very wealthy people face in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, are pretty similar, actually, to the marginal tax rates in the U.S., at least in states like New York or California, where you have... Uh, uh, you know, sizable state taxes. And and in fact, you know, Scandinavian countries, uh, Sweden in particular, they've gone a very long way towards reducing uh, taxation on capital at the top very substantially. So Sweden, for instance, it's, it's really an incredible story. They got rid of their wealth tax. They got rid of their estate tax. And they n- neither have an estate nor an inheritance tax. Mm. They get rid of their property tax. They used to have progressive taxation of capital income, just like labor income, but they got rid of it. They have a flat rate at a relatively low rate for capital income. So they just tax capital very, very little. And despite that, you you see that wealthy people hide uh, really uh, a lot of wealth. And and the reason for this, I think if you want to understand what's going on, you, you need to think not about the demand side of tax evasion services, not about wealthy people themselves, but about the supply side, about the banks, the financial institutions that operate in tax havens. What they do is that they target very rich people. So, you know, for instance, they like to sponsor, you know, concerts or galas or you know, golf events and they invite people you know in those events and you know they don't they don't invite me uh, they don't invite you but they do invite some some very very wealthy people and um, the, the the computation that they make is it's better to have relatively few clients but really super wealthy clients if we have too many clients the probability of a leak, for instance, increases. The probability that one of those clients is going to, to be caught by the tax authority rises. If we focus on the very top end of the wealth distribution, we can charge, you know, you know we can make quite a lot of revenue with fees and the probability to get caught uh, is, is reduced. And that's exactly what they do. You know, if you look at the, the, the recent trends in that business is they shut down, you know, small accounts. So they kick people out, you know, lot, dozens of French people who had inherited accounts in Switzerland. They don't want them anymore. Fewer and fewer accounts, but the average account value, you know, is just skyrocketing. So they're concentrating on uh, on the ultra-wealthy. And the, the reason why I talk about all this is that it's, it's because 
I think fundamentally, if you want to make progress from a policy perspective on those issues, it's not going to be by cutting taxes. Sweden did it in a pretty extreme way. It doesn't seem to have reduced tax evasion a lot. It's going to be by uh, changing the incentives of the suppliers of tax evasion services. And how do you change their incentives? Well, it's relatively easy. If when they get caught and when they are found conducting criminal activity, which a number of banks have pleaded guilty to, you know, they need to face very, very strong penalties, which has not been the case. You know, UBS had to pay to the, to the US less than a billion. Credit Suisse had to pay about two billion. HSBC had to pay about two billion to settle, you know, charges that it facilitated money laundering by Mexican drug cartels, which seems a pretty serious problem for for a bank. Right. And you might say, well, two billion, that sort of money. Well, that's, that same year, they made more than $20 billion in profit. So it's not really a ton of money for them. You know, that's the problem, because as long as the penalties are so small, I think tax evasion and, and money laundering will continue. On the other hand, if... The approach is, well, when a bank is found violating really the basic international rules, then it's shut out, it's shut off of, you know, of business, then I think change, things would, would really change. Now, of course, the problem is it's hard, you know, to, 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 to put banks and especially big banks out of business. So regulators increasingly have come to the conclusion that they should not, indict big, big banks because there is a risk for financial stability. So they are too big to indict. And if they feel that indeed they are too big to indict, we are in serious trouble uh, because penalties will always be too small. Tax evasion will continue. So one potential question I have about this and I'm, is just that the HSBC data you're referring to is from 2007. And there have been changes made since then, at least in terms of the state of the law. Do you have a sense of whether some of the trends you identified may have improved, in tr- at least in terms of compliance in, in Northern Europe? Yes. No, things have improved uh, since 2007, the time of the leak. The fraction of accounts that, that are reported that belong to Europeans in Switzerland is rising from 5% at the time of the leak to about 25% today. Starting... Next year, in 2018, Swiss banks will conduct a, a, an automatic exchange of bank information with other countries' tax authorities. It's a big progress because 10 years ago, there was absolutely no exchange of information. So they would just say nothing. One story which I find particularly damning is in my home country, in, in, in France, the budget minister had... Uh, uh, a hidden Swiss bank account. And that was found out by pure luck because he was taped and the tape, you know, surfaced at, you know, 10 years after it was recorded. Uh, pure luck. But the, so the tape surfaces at some point when he's budget minister, where you hear him say, you know, talking about his, his UBS, you know, undeclared account. And then the, the, <laughs> French tax authorities send a request, an information request to Switzerland, and they ask Swiss authorities and Swiss banks, does this person have a Swiss account? And what does they reply? No. <laughs> so they just so the, the official response was, we conducted an inquiry, and the answer is no. So this shows you the, the level of cooperation you know, that in practice... And that was in 2012. They in practice existed in those years. And the reason why they said no is because the account had been moved from UBS Switzerland to UBS Singapore. Okay. And so they said, oh, no, no. We never heard of him. Okay. So that was only five years ago. My hope is that maybe now we are going to see some change. But you have to be careful. They are supposed now to tell the truth. They were also supposed back then to tell the truth, and you know, they did not always really, really do it. All right, we have sadly a limited amount of time left, but we have to also talk about the research you've done on trends in inequality separate from tax evasion, tax avoidance. So 
very briefly, one of the, I think, very important things that you and, and your co-authors have, have shown is that the change in the distribution of income is overwhelmingly a case of essentially people in the top 0.1% of the population, the top 1,000th, having very large gains and everyone else being more or less flat. That's often not the common narrative, but one thing that is sort of, I see people pushing back on this to a degree is they say, oh, you're using tax data, and tax data is not the same thing as household data, and there are problems, you know, the Federal Reserve had a paper about this, you know, that tax units, there's 30% more tax units than households, and, you know, certain things don't add up. Can, can you kind of explain a little more what, you know, the nature of the controversy is and, and your response to them? Yes, so... It's a very, it's a very important issue. It's, it's, it's again, one of those questions where there's no perfect data. It's not a perfect science. There's just a lot of uncertainty about what's going on, and there's nothing like the perfect data source. The tax data have nice characteristics, in the sense that all rich people have to file a tax return, and that's valuable compared to survey data is in survey data you usually have very few rich people who are surveyed and you look at the surveys that are commonly used to study inequality and you can do a simple computation you can rank people by their income or their wealth if it's a wealth survey and look at who's the richest person in the survey and always the richest person is just implausibly poor maybe he or she has $10 $10 million, $20 million in wealth, $1 million in income. We know in real facts that there are billionaires and there are lots of people between $100 million and $1 billion in net wealth. And you see just, you don't see these people in survey data. So the, the, the work that I try to do, in particular with, with Emmanuel Saez, Thomas Piketty, and others, is a work that tries to combine the various data sources that exist. The tax data need to be combined with survey data, and all of them they need to be combined with national accounts data, which is even more important in many ways, because the way that inequality too often is is studied, it's studied in a way that's disconnected from macroeconomics. So you have macroeconomics on the one hand that tells you about GDP growth, and that's one world. And an- another world is based on household survey data, how household income is growing. And, and, and these two worlds don't talk to each other, and so the, the numbers don't add up. Look at the growth in survey data or in the inequality world. This bears little resemblance to macroeconomic growth. So that's why you need to combine all of this. Okay? And again, it, it's, not, it's not a perfect science, but when you try to do that in, in, in a... In a comprehensive way, what you see is that wealth inequality, first of all, in the U.S., has increased a lot, and income inequality a lot. So we, we did it first for wealth, we, with Emmanuel says in, in a paper that we wrote originally in 2014 that was published in 2016, doing exactly this approach. You start from macroeconomic wealth, and you distribute it to people by combining tax data and survey data. What we found is the top 0.1% of the distribution in the U.S. used to own about 7% of total U.S. wealth in the 1970s and now owns about 20% or more than 20%. So its share of wealth has been multiplied by three. The bottom 90% of the distribution also owns about 20% of total wealth. So the U.S. is an economy where the top 0.1% owns about as much in total as the bottom 90%. And there are margins of error, there are uncertainties, but I think the, 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 the orders of magnitude are correct and, and the trend is correct. And it's not something that can be analyzed very accurately with survey data because with survey data, you're never going to have precise estimates of the wealth of people in the top 0.1% or top 0.01%. Top 0.01%, for instance, in the U.S., just to fix ideas. These are households with more than $120 million in net wealth. Do you know what happens when, what, what happens when you try to ask people with more than $100 million to participate in your survey? 
Well, 90% of the cases, or 80-90%, they just say no. I have no interest in your survey. So you're not going to be able to analyze these, this segment of the wealth distribution with survey data. And you, might, you, you will tell, you might think, well, we don't care, you know, this top 0.01%, it's, it's just a tiny fraction of the population, but the top 0.01% owns 12% of total wealth in the U.S., so that's not uh, quantitatively insignificant, and it's it's what's driving a big part of the increase in wealth concentration because it used to own about four percent. So its share has been again multiplied by three. So to to have these trends, to to capture these trends correctly, you tax data play a critical role. But I want to stress, I think I am aware of the limitations of tax data. That was the starting point of our conversation. That was the starting point of my research. We've not even tried yet in that research on U.S. inequality to account for hidden assets and tax evasion and offshore wealth. And I, I hope we'll be able to do it in the future, in particular if we're able to analyze leaks. But So I'm, I'm well aware of the limitations of tax data. I just want to say my basic conviction is... On these issues, you have to be pragmatic. You have to do with what you have, which are data sources of, of limited quality, and you have to combine them in a way that's transparent, that's comprehensive, and, and it's work in progress. And, and as better data emerges, then we can improve the estimates. Now, on, on the substance, uh, that wealth inequality is rising in the U.S., I, I think even in, sur in surveys, you see that very clearly. Even though people who only use survey data tend to believe that wealth inequality has increased less than what we estimate. Everybody agrees that it has increased a lot. For income, it's very much the same thing. So for income, I think there's one thing that everybody agrees on is that there's been really very little growth for the vast majority of the population in the U.S., so in, in recently we were able to be a bit more precise on that by by anchoring you know surveys and tax data to national accounts data. We were able to compute the growth rate of income for each percentile of the income distribution in a way that adds up perfectly to macroeconomic growth. So since 1980, per adult income in the U.S. has increased by 1.4 percent a year on average which is not, you know, is not a lot. So at the macro level, just the U.S. economy has not grown a lot since 1980, 1.5% per adult per year. Now, what's even more important and what's really striking is that for the vast, vast majority of the population, their income grows less than 1.4%. That is, from the bottom up to the 88th percentile, the income growth rate is less than 1.4%. In fact, for the bottom 50%, so for half of the population, so 120 million adults, on average, their income has not grown at all since 1980. That is, the average income... That's their pre-tax income. Pre-tax income. The average pre-tax income uh, before government intervention per adult adjusted for inflation was $16,000 in 1980, Today, it's $16,000. Zero growth for half of the population. For what you could call the middle class, you know, from the, the median to the 90th percentile, there's been a little bit of growth, but less than the macro growth for all those percentiles, less than the macro growth of 1.4%. And all the growth has been not in the top 10, not in the top 5. It's in the top one. It's even in the top 0.1%. So if you want to see really substantial growth rates of 3% or more per year, you need to look at the top 0.1% of the income distribution. So some people have this view, for instance, that what, what has happened in the, in the U.S. economy is the U.S. economy works super well for the top 20%, for the top quintile, and not well for the bottom 80%. But it's not even true. So the growth performance of percentiles 80, 85, 90 is nothing spectacular. It's the top 1% that's been pulling away from the rest of the economy. And it's, it's critically important to understand it because it, it, it affects the, you know, the, the thinking about the policies that you could implement. I, if you want to have more equitable growth, 
you need to do things that are going to lift the pre-tax income uh, of the bottom 50% or the bottom 90%. That, that's important because, so one common reaction to all of this is, oh, but all of this is pre-tax income with, when you take into account taxes and transfers, uh, there's much more growth for the working class and the middle class. And it, it's true that there is a more growth, but uh, no, only a little bit. And the stagnation in pre-tax income is so striking, it's, it's so massive that if you want to lift income for the working and the middle class, it's not enough to, to increase transfers. That's not going to make enough of a difference. If you want to have a less unequal distribution of income or less rise in inequality in the U.S., you need to boost pre-tax income. And so what, what does it mean, boosting pre-tax income? Increasing bargaining power, you know, of, of, of labor, for instance. Investing in, in equal access to education, and in particular higher education. It's a hugely important challenge for the U.S. Progressive taxation affects not only the distribution of post-tax income in a mechanical way, but also the distribution of pre-tax income. One of the key reasons, not, not the only one, but one of the key reasons why the, the income of the top 1% has increased so much is because the, the, their taxes have declined. The, the marginal tax rates that they face have declined from you know, 90% to 30 40% in recent decades. And um, when people with millions of dollars in income face a marginal tax rate of 90%, they really don't have incentives to try to earn a bit more because 90 cents on the dollar is going to go to the IRS. Now, when their marginal tax rate is 20%, you know, like hedge fund or private equity fund managers through carried interest, when their marginal tax rate is 20%, then yes, they are going to do, you know, all sorts of things, maybe totally things that are good for the economy, like working more, innovating more, but also maybe things that are bad, like seeking rents, like uh, uh, taking money from one pocket to the other, from shareholders to, to CEOs, from ordinary workers to uh, uh, corporate executives. Uh, they are going to skew regulations uh, in, in their advantage if they know that now they can keep 80 cents out of any extra dollar. So that, I think, the decline in progressive taxation, that explains a lot of what has happened in the U.S. And, and what I see as, as an increase in rent-seeking in, in many parts of the economy. So look, for instance, at what happens in the pharmaceutical industry, where some, some drugs are sold you know, for dozens of, of, of thousands of dollars when, when you know, their marginal cost is in the you know, dozens of, of, of dollars. Uh, and and the, the, the millions in lobbying that are spent to make sure that these uh, crazy uh, uh, patent laws uh, remain in place. If the taxes that you face are pretty low, yes, that, that's going to be our incentive to tr try to, to manipulate uh, 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 Congress and to lobby Congress to, to, to maintain the status quo. But if you have much more progressive taxation... That's also a way to, to address these issues of uh, rising rent-seeking in, in many parts of the economy. Hey everyone, it's Cardiff back here in the studio in the present day. I'm here with Matt Klein. We hope you enjoyed that chat. But before we close out the show, Matt and I are going to do our long-form recommendations for the week. Matt, what are you recommending that our listeners either read or watch or listen to? So I'm going to recommend a book called Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan by Tony Cronman, which is, uh, as you might guess from the title, it's a very big and ambitious book. Um, it covers a lot of ground, and to be honest, I'm not sure I necessarily buy the main argument that he makes, but it is absolutely fascinating as a history of Western philosophy, basically from the time of uh, the pre-Platonic philosophers in Greece all the way up until the present day and trying to understand how those arguments evolved and the contradictions that emerged. And he goes on some tangents that about the, you know, how essentially that the contradictions that, that developed that have yet to be resolved, which has led to a sort of a spiritual vacuum in, in modern Western society. But overall, it's a fascinating book. Strongly recommend it. You left a lot of ambiguity in your synthesis of confessions of a born-again pagan you said you don't really agree with his arguments what what is his argument well i mean there's a, there's a lot of 
there are a couple of big points in there. One is that there's a fundamental contradiction at the heart of Christianity, which led people ultimately to reject the existence of the divine in the West. He also argues that one consequence of this has been the abolition of the concept of gratitude in society, which, again, I'm not sure I would go necessarily as far as he would on these points, but he makes them you know, in a very intriguing way. And even if you don't agree with him, the, the long, detailed history he has of, of arguments you know, from Aristotle and Plato and Aquinas and Occam and other people you wouldn't necessarily have heard of and how those link together in a chain and, and, and also linking the, the ethics with the metaphysics in a way that is very novel and I thought was very interesting. Yeah, that sounds great. Mine is in a totally different vein. I am recommending a podcast series called Mogul. It's produced by Gimlet, and it is hosted and reported by Reggio Say. It's about the life and death of Chris Lighty, his entry into the world of hip-hop, his role in it. Uh, he was quite a big deal, and I'm going to leave some of the details purposely vague so that you check it out. But it does a magnificent job of telling both the story of Chris Lighty, the man who was not an unambiguously good person. I mean, he was a complicated figure. He had his demons for sure. Right alongside the story of the evolution of hip-hop, its emergence in the 1980s and the 1990s, and Chris Lighty's role in it. It's really fascinating. Uh, And also, just from a technical standpoint, uh, I think it represents something new in podcasting. I really loved it. So again, Mogul, hosted by Reggie Osei. And that is all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are based in the United States. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. At ft.com forward slash alphachat, you'll find the show notes for this episode and all other previous episodes. And of course, as always, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. We really appreciate those. Amy Keene is the hidden wealth of Alpha Chat, and if I had to dodge taxes in order to keep her on the show, I absolutely would. Thanks for everything, Amy, our amazing producer and editor, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.